and you know and then the the light starts coming back so that's something to look forward to uh but i have a fantastic show for you uh to uh carry you uh through through this new moon and and uh the uh darkness of this season um i am going to be uh, reading to you a uh, work by the wonderful writer Cleo Valenza. And first I am going to read an excerpt from her novel, The Piano Room, uh, which is a really uh, beautiful book uh, published by Fairlight Books. And you can, you know, get your paws on your own copy, but uh, I'm going to read you uh, the, a little summary and, uh, and then uh, an excerpt from the first chapter. So, uh, The Piano Room. Sandor Esterhazy is descended from a long line of talented pianists, but has no desire to play. So one snowy afternoon, he promises his soul to the devil in exchange for a life of his own choosing. Afterwards, he laughs it off as a joke. But that night the devil arrives, dragging someone or something with him. Uncertain what to do with the bewildered creature, Sandor locks it in the basement, allowing it out only once a night to visit the piano room. The creature, who he names Ferdi, is desperate to play. Sandor slips easily into his new role of captor, but as Ferdi learns what it is to be human, tensions between the two escalate, and Ferdi escapes into the world. Part 1, 1990 The entrance to the bar resembled a dark wooden panel pasted arbitrarily on the side of the alley. The light of the menu display was broken and the iron handle regularly stuck. People often thought it was closed until the door opened and music and tobacco spilled out. Stairs covered in moth-eaten carpet led down to the dining area, a room of low arches and chipped brick and a narrow stage where a rickety piano hid under faded cloth. The owner was Mrs. Soltas, a religious widow of eclectic taste in wine and questionable taste in food. Portions were large and cheap, and the place was an establishment where grizzled figures in drab raincoats and woolen hats could drink, eat, read the newspaper, and smoke for hours on end. On mornings like this, where clouds hung low above Budapest and a thin, wet mist floated, the only commotion came from the routine deliveries of meat and groceries. The grocery boy was hauling crates of produce down the service door steps leading into the kitchen, 
while a gangly young man with a grave face was following the boy's muddy trail, mopping the tiled floor. His thick black hair, short and unruly, stuck to his temples, and the hands that clutched the mop were rough and clever. A thin, gleaming scar traced the length of his cheekbone like a kiss, illuminating the side of his face and giving him an uneven, curious expression. He put the mop aside and set about unloading and putting the groceries away, handling each vegetable with care. Every now and then he would glance up at the piano through the open kitchen door. The grocery boy caught his gaze. No good, he smiled, gesturing at the instrument while piling up the empty crates. They never tune it. The man didn't reply and dragged a sack of potatoes out of the way. The boy shrugged and disappeared through the service entrance. The man pulled out a large basin, filled it with water, and sat by the sink. He picked up a knife, twirled it pensively between his fingers, and started to peel. Slowly his eyes became vacant, his mouth relaxed, and his mind went quiet. Ferdi Molnar! Ferdi jumped out of his reverie. A woman appeared in the doorway, still in her overcoat. The strands of hair sticking out from under her hat were damp. Ferdi, the meat is sitting on the counter. Why haven't you put it in the fridge? He hurried to put the meat away, while the woman shook her head at him. You'd never hear the end of it if she was here before me. Ferdi resumed his seat and picked up another potato. Thanks, Erzi. She sighed. He watched as she took off her coat and her hat and put on an apron. She rubbed the numbness off her cheeks, leaving them scarlet and warm. Did you mop up? Yes. She went back into the dining room, and he heard her switch on the radio, then the knocking of chairs being turned upright. She started humming the words to the popular song currently being played. Erzy, he called. There came a faint yes through the scraping wood of the chairs. Is the band really not playing here anymore? No, Emilian told me they found a better job. So who is playing these days? There was an exasperated sigh. I don't know, Ferdy, nobody. What about the piano? What about it? He bit his lip. Nobody has played it since I came here. Well, so? The knocking of the chairs paused. Ferdy, spit it out already. It's out of tune, he said at last. What do you know about pianos? He shrugged and kept peeling. It's a waste, that's all. By the evening, the bar was full, and the air thick with the scent of food and clothes steaming as the rain dried off them in the warmth. Ferdy's sweat dripped into the hot dishwater, and his shirt clung to his back. The crew were dancing round the ovens, ladles and sizzling, pans in hand, and above the din, Erzi's voice could be heard dispensing orders from the doorway. When at last it was time for a break, Ferdy wrapped himself in his coat and climbed out into the alley. The service door, being further away from the street than the main entrance, opened to a quiet, sheltered spot. There he collapsed on a pile of wet crates. The abrupt silence calmed him. It had rained in the afternoon and the evening was fresh and cold. His breath fogged the air. The street was gleaming, peaceful and dim. From somewhere came the roar of cars. Two women with identically brushed hair walked past him, their heels echoing. The strip of sky between the apartment buildings was pink and gold. Ferdy rubbed his hands and examined them. The palms were hardened. The skin around his knuckles was cracked and spattered with small scars. 
His nails were cut painfully short, and his fingertips were flat and square. He flexed them a few times. He couldn't remember the last time he had played the piano. It could have been a decade. He saw his reflection on the dark window of the sporting goods store across the alley, ghost-like, floating, his face lost in a blur. He moved, and the ghost moved, too. The feeling was familiar. There was a sharp pain in his left wrist, and he pressed it until the pain subsided. The service door creaked open, and light and steam trickled out. The new head cook, a stocky blonde man, walked out balancing a pack of cigarettes on a cup of coffee. He nodded at Ferdi, put the cup on the crates, and lit a cigarette with a mint-green windproof lighter. He offered him one, and Ferdi took it, noticing a faded tattoo between the man's thumb and index finger. The cigarette paper was warm from the coffee vapors. It tasted very new, almost green. The cook stubbed out the rest of his cigarette and sipped his coffee. Not really my break, he sighed. I just needed a smoke. All that tobacco coming from the dining room. It makes a man weak. One thing I hate about kitchen jobs, you can't smoke. Faraday nodded. The cook waved a fly away with his thick arm, releasing the smell of fried oil. What's your name again? Molnar. Faraday Molnar. The cook sized him up. I'm Dieter. A German name? Yes. You speak Hungarian well. My grandmother was from around here. Made the best walnut cream cake you'd ever tasted. Dieter drank again, his face crimson from the scalding beverage. Faraday smoked with no particular pleasure. He liked the cook well enough from the couple of words they'd exchanged in the kitchen, and his cheery disposition was pleasant. Dieter chatted on, his sandy hair illuminating them both like a street lamp. It's like hell in there, hot and cramped and it stinks. Faraday took one last uncertain puff, filling his lungs until they prickled and burned, and threw the butt on the wet ground. It's not too bad. I'm glad I'm here, don't get me wrong, but I've had my share of odd jobs, and kitchens is still the one I hate the most. Ask me where I learned how to cook. Faraday almost smiled. Where? Dieter winked. If I told you, I'd have to kill you. They heard chatter, and a group of laughing young men and women appeared further down the alleyway. The group took no notice of them and stepped into the bar. One of the boys was wearing a crisp suit and a bow tie. Music students, this city is filled with them. My neighbor is learning the bassoon, so I might kill him one day. Dieter chuckled, and his whole body shook. Do you play? No, you're the bookish type. I know them when I see them. You like to read, don't you? I do. I also play the piano, Faraday said, rubbing his wrist again. Really? You don't look like a music student. I'm not. What are you, then? A teacher? An artist? No dishwasher is ever just a dishwasher. Faraday glanced at the ghostly reflection floating in the dark window of the sporting goods store again. He shrugged and didn't reply. Dieter downed his coffee. Well, good talking to you, Molnar, whatever you are. He turned to leave and paused at the door. Do you know Erzi, the head waitress? I've seen you two talk. Not much. We just worked the same shift. Dieter's face fell for a moment. He took his cook's cap from his pocket and put it on. It was too small for him and made him look childlike. He grinned. All right. See you in hell, Molnar. 
Then he laughed, pleased with his joke, and disappeared. Ferdy walked home a little drunk that night, pressing his chest to smother the hiccups. He had left right when the revelry was reaching its peak, and Mrs. Soltis had grabbed him and sat him down next to her. She had poured him wine and refilled his glass until his eyes swam, and all he saw was the swirling violet smoke. He wasn't used to alcohol, and now and then he stumbled on the wet pavement. He kept hearing Dieter's words, circling around his head like birds looking to perch. See you in hell, see you in hell, see you in hell. He made a detour and headed towards the Danube to clear his head. The Black River was bloated with rain, curving and ready to burst. He collapsed on a bench, inhaling air scented with gasoline. Sky and water were flecked with the amber of street lamps and stars. A boat restaurant was anchored close by, and from its bright deck came a cheerful din. The water swelled gently. He watched it until his eyelids drooped. He woke up with a start. A heavy hand was on his shoulder. Hey you, you can't sleep here. Faraday rubbed his eyes. The hand retreated. I was on my way home, he mumbled. He turned to look, but there was nobody. Faraday shuddered, wrapped his coat tighter around himself, and sneezed. His hair and neck were wet. It must have drizzled while he was asleep. The music from the boat restaurant had died down. A waitress passed him while taking out the rubbish and glanced at him with curiosity. When Faraday met her gaze, she hurried to look away. See you in hell, Molnar. Faraday scratched his scar, picked himself up, and walked along the embankment, taking his time. His mind was rejuvenated with sleep, and he relished the river air against his clammy skin, the comfort of the shoddy shoes on his tired feet. It was a beautiful night, soft, as if it could be molded by a skillful hand into pleasant shapes. He trapped gusts of wind in his mouth and sucked at them. They had the vague alcoholic taste of rotting fruit. He thought of Sandor at that moment with a tightening of the stomach and a sinking of the heart. He thought of the perpetual darkness of the gunroom at the Esterhazy Manor, the damp walls, the rough towel drenched in icy water, the thirst, the hunger, the silence. Skulking against the wall of the house, jumping through the window into the warm piano room, the glossy piano lid, the crisp hiss of the music sheets, the taste of milk. Sandor towering above him, his knuckles dusted with blood. Dragging an impossibly heavy body through the forest, with twigs stabbing at his sides. The images dissolved. Ferdi focused on the reflections dancing on the wet ground, following the ripples of the blues and the oranges. He began to translate the lights into a melody, adding or shedding a note here and there, until his stroll became a distracted lullaby. He was hungry and he needed to shower. The melody kept playing in his mind, and his fingers danced inside the pockets of his coat. He dreamt of the Esterhazy mansion that night. It was crumbling, silent. Books were rotting on shelves. Cupboards sat agape, their contents caked with dust. Unmade beds, windows dark with dirt, peeling wallpaper streaked with mold. The piano's innards showing, its cords silent like tendons, and the keys broken and immobilized with dirt, sticking out and abandoned mid-song, still pressing down a note into infinity. 
tongue with cricket ink. It was blissful to have a routine, the creaking of the water pipes in the morning, the sound of water boiling in the pot, the slice of bread and jam washed down with instant coffee. Finding the communal lavatory down the corridor from his room clean, misty with the eye-watering smell of bleach. He was off just as the city was beginning to stir, and he could glance at the wilting magazines at the newspaper stands, dodge the sweeper's brooms, and peek into the bread-laden trucks. 
A tram line stopped close to the bar, but he only took it when there was rain or snow. Faraday preferred walking. He liked to watch people go about their morning while the crisp air stung his skin and the blood thumped reassuringly in his limbs. He would open the bar alone before the deliveries began and Erzy arrived, enjoying the feel of this darkness that was saturated with alcohol and tobacco. As Faraday would then set about his chores, he would be accompanied by the silent reflections of himself on the floor and the varnished counters. On that day, the butcher's assistant was one Faraday had never seen before, a densely built teenager, nineteen or twenty perhaps, with close-cropped hair and a thin mustache. A flimsy orthodox cross slipped out from his collar when he leaned in to let the parcel fall from his shoulder. Faraday watched both boy and meat with fascination. There was something horribly alive about the animal leg, still intact to the hoof, and as the boy turned it over it seemed about to kick. The tip of the boy's left ear was stained with blood. The boy's hands moved fast, separating and counting the cuts. The skin of the pig, lined with white fat, was the same hue as the arm that had handled it. The fingers left deep prints on its flesh, and Ferdy had the same sensation of being prodded. He imagined his mind bearing the same marks, and within the round indentations a residue of human contact left, like the oils of a fingertip. The boy wiped his hands on his apron, saw Faraday watching, and grinned, revealing a row of sharp, pearly teeth. Faraday wrapped the meat again and carried it to the fridge, careful not to touch any part of the animal. There was still an hour of solitude left. Faraday stepped into the dining room. On the stage, the cloth draped over the piano seemed to be billowing softly. He walked up to it, paused, and then pulled it off. The wood was lustrous and amplified the low light, sending reddish puddles of it around the brick walls. Faraday was relieved. He had half expected the piano to be derelict and useless like the instrument in his dream. He opened the lid. The hinges were stiff with rust, and the keys were covered with a strip of green felt older than the piano itself. On it the words, Dieu vous garde, were stitched in yellow thread, with the faint unevenness of something handmade. Faraday touched the keys and felt their stiffness. He pressed down a cord, and the echo jumbled around the room. There was a grainy quality to it, as if someone had brushed their nail through the teeth of a comb. As his fingers traced the keys, he felt the same erratic indentations forming in him by this touch, just as he had when the butcher's boy had been poking the fresh meat. He played a short tune. The sound was coarse. He flexed his hand once more and contemplated it, then tried a different tune, a swirling piece from a folk song. The twang of the lax chords enriched the melody with a strange vivacity. Faraday smiled, repeated the tune, and filled it up with gusto until the cacophony worsened and reduced the music to a rattle. He straightened his back and gave the piano a satisfied look. A chuckle escaped him. I'll be damned. You've never laughed before. Erzy was standing at the doorway, dripping with rain. She applauded. Faraday drew back. I didn't hear you come in. I didn't know you could play. That's what all this was about yesterday. Ferdi replaced the cloth on the keys, shut the lid, and pulled the cover into place. He felt Erzy step closer. The bar's garlicky smell had seeped into her clothes. Don't be embarrassed, Ferdi, she said. Please don't tell anyone about it, he replied, and fled into the kitchen, reemerging with his apron on.
Dieter seemed to have decided in the meantime that now he and Faraday were perfect friends. Whenever their eyes met, he gave him a grin or a wink. Once he slapped his shoulder to congratulate him on the fast removal of a brimming pot, and the blow made Faraday's bones clatter. The tall, sandy-haired cook was more heavy-set than excessively muscular, but seemed to have no control over his strength. Glasses broke, towels ripped, and toes were crushed in his wake. But his goulash was the finest that had ever been served in that questionable establishment. When Faraday stepped out for his break, he found Dieter already there. I heard you met Petar today, the cook said, while the coffee worked its way into their system. I went over to take a look at their meat and met him. Looks clueless, doesn't he? But he gives us the best cuts, and Holy Mother has never been happier. The boy from the butcher? Yes, he's Yugoslavian. Have you seen his cross? Apparently they drink wine with their communion. If I'd known that, I'd have become an Orthodox years ago. Good kid. I took him out since he's new here, and he ate, drank, and bled me dry. Then I took him to one of those nice places full of university girls, and he clammed up like a schoolboy. The service door creaked open, and Erzi's sweaty head appeared, reflecting the copper light of the street lamps. Faraday, can you spare a minute? I need to fill the carafes, and everyone's busy. Faraday glanced at Dieter, who was contemplating his coffee dregs. Sure. She disappeared. Faraday finished his coffee and got up, stretched his legs, and was met with Dieter's sheepish grin. When work was finished and Faraday returned home, the caretaker had closed up and retired to his radio, so Faraday had to push the heavy door with his shoulder to slip into the reception corridor and through to the open courtyard of his apartment building. This small rectangular atrium got little sunlight, and the ground was perpetually green and slimy with a puddle of stale rainwater. As Faraday crossed it and climbed the open stairway, a couple of cockroaches darted away from him, and the smell of old cooking oil clung to the back of his throat. He took out his keys and heard a familiar cough in the darkness. A sliver of light fell on him and widened as someone opened a door into the hallway. "'Good evening, Miss Elena,' he said. She peered back at him. Her long gray hair was side-plated and fell over her flannel dressing gown. From her apartment came the smell of roasted peppers. Mr. Molnar, I thought you might be a thief. It's late. It's only half past eight. Did you have a nice day? She shot him a suspicious look and nodded. Well, good night, then. He was about to close the door when he saw her step out. She put two nicotine-stained fingers in the pocket of her dressing gown and took out an envelope. This came for you. Your box in the front hall is unmarked, so the postman threw it in mine. You should fix that. She handed it to him, and he took it with the tips of his fingers. He glanced at it, and then at Miss Ilona's amused face. What do I do with it? The corner of her mouth twitched. Open it, I hope. Good night, Mr. Molnar. She shuffled back inside. Ferdy placed the envelope on the table that took up most of his little room. There was no return address. He hung his coat behind the door and put on water to boil for tea. The kitchen consisted only of the small stove, a tiny sink, a cabinet, and a stumpy fridge, along with a green stain on the ceiling from the lack of ventilation. The rest of the furniture was just as sparse. A single bed in the far corner, a wooden table with mismatched chairs, and a wardrobe. A deep window with double panels overlooked the atrium. Ferdy sat at the table, poured his tea, and opened the letter. There was only one page— written in a steady, upright hand. Dear Mr. Molnar, 
I have been informed that you reside peacefully and unobtrusively at this address, to my great pleasure and surprise after Sandor's vanishing, and you having disappeared from my sight for so many years. I am very curious to hear from you. What would you say to us meeting and exchanging stories over a pleasant cup of coffee? On the evening of the 30th of October, I will be waiting for you at the cafe across the street from the opera house at 9 p.m. Do come. Until then, I remain your oldest friend. There was no signature. Verdi's first thought was that he would have to get a calendar. His left hand began to shake uncontrollably. He clenched his fist and clutched the hot mug until the tremors subsided. Petar was the first person he met the next day. When Faraday asked him about the date, the boy told him it was the 20th. In his bloody butcher's coat and that mustache, he looked like a horror film poster. Did you miss your girlfriend's birthday? He grinned. Faraday shook his head and put the parcels away. He calculated the time he had left until the meeting at the cafe and realized he would be working. He would have to switch his day off with someone. Behind him, Petar was washing his hands, humming a pop song. On his right forearm was the tattoo of a ram skull. When he saw Faraday looking, he flexed his muscles. Fearless, he bragged. Faraday paused. Can I ask you a question? Fire away. What would you do if you only had ten days left to live? Petar blushed the roots of his bristly hair. He dried his hands on his coat, avoiding Faraday's eyes, and stood silent for a while. I'd forget about the consequences, he said at last. He walked out and slammed the door behind him. Faraday thought the shock of the letter would numb him, but he went on with his work with newfound alertness. He couldn't understand why he wasn't simply quitting, packing his few possessions and leaving the city. It struck him that he didn't fear much for his life. Surely it was too unimportant for anyone to hold it hostage. Shuddering despite the heat from the stoves, he allowed the fragmented memories of the snowstorm to pass through his mind undisturbed, like some dangerous animal. The memory was blurred, but still so potent that he could forget to breathe. Hey, Molnar, where's your mind? Someone walked into him and Faraday huddled at his post. He sank his hands into the dirty water where the pot soaked. The sheen of filth and grease on the water had a soothing grounding effect, and the rough wire brush diverted his focus to his fingers. As he squinted through wafts of steam, he was aware of his scar, stretching the skin under his eye. And where had Sandor disappeared to all those years? They hadn't lain eyes on each other for such a long time. At times, Faraday felt an inexplicable pang of incompleteness without him around. He dreamt about him occasionally, about the two of them young and sitting in the piano room as they used to. In those dreams, Sandor was kind and friendly, and he watched Faraday with pride from the side of the piano. But the guilty sweetness the dreams would bring made waking up to the harsh reality of Sandor's cruelty even worse. On those mornings, Faraday's loneliness was so pervasive it made its bones ache. The scar was smarting again, and his throat had closed. Faraday breathed deep and counted each scrub until all the pots were clean. Dieter came over. You get off work around seven, don't you, Molnar? Usually. Let's go for a beer tomorrow. It's my day off. All right. I'll pick you up after your shift. Do you have a car? No, I don't drive. Somewhere close, then. By the way. Dieter glanced nervously at the door leading to the dining room. Faraday caught his look. You can ask Erzy yourself, he said. Dieter deflated a little. 
The sight amused Faraday. You know her better, Dieter complained. Ask her. You'd be there too, I mean, like friends. Faraday shook his head. Incredible. What? That someone so big can hide behind me. Dieter turned pink. He began to laugh, leaned in, and gave Faraday one of his fearsome slaps on the back. You're right, Molnar. I'm sorry. Let's just go the two of us. I'll figure something out. Faraday rubbed his aching shoulder. He liked Erzine, he liked Dieter, and it was unprecedented being involved in other people's lives. I'll ask her if you're decent about it. I'm not half as decent as you're turning out to be. Faraday found Erzine in the dining room, piling plates on her arms, with the apparent improbability of a magician's act. Her freckled face was glistening. She didn't notice him until he spoke. Do you have any plans tomorrow night? She glanced up in alarm. No, why? One of the plates teetered on her wrist. Dieter and I are going out after work if you'd like to come along. She exhaled. Oh, all right, sounds nice. Faraday returned to his post and caught Dieter watching him before hurrying back to his frying pan. Later that night, Faraday watched the cars pass on the far bank of the river, their headlights blinking like fireflies. Bicycles sped past him. A group of girls dressed for a night out were sitting on the ledge and laughing, and as Faraday passed, they paused and stared. Faraday was conscious of the cooking smells clinging on to him, of his old coat and messy hair. He tried to slow down his breathing. It was a busy night, perhaps a Friday or a Saturday. He could only remember that it was the 20th and that he had 10 days left. What was it that Petar had said? I'd forget about the consequences.
tongue with orange sky and i'm gonna stop there in the piano room but you can pick up your own copy of this novel from fairlight books they're at fairlightbooks.co.uk slash the hyphen piano hyphen room um but i will read you um and so an excerpt uh, from an interview Fairlight Books did with uh, Cleo Valenza uh, about the piano room. If you could describe the piano room in one word, what would it be? Haunted. The piano room is written in two perspectives, Sandor and Ferdi. Which was your favorite to write? Sandor's, since at that early stage, the story retains a level of innocence and active exploration alongside the main character. It was also the first that I wrote, since I went about the chronology in a linear way. It was thrilling, and I must admit that I loved returning to the oppressive halls of the Esterhazy Manor. Since so much of Ferdi's perspective is about confronting trauma and fear, and is a sort of coming-to-life story, it took a lot out of me to get there with Ferdi. I always try to put myself in the character's shoes, and it was an immensely rewarding process as I learned alongside him. But every step of the way required deep diving, which wasn't always easy. Yet it made me feel closer to Ferdi than to any of the other characters. The piano room is set in Hungary. Why did you find yourself drawn to writing a story set in this location? Because of the rich, diverse, and important musical history and education there. When I realized that I was writing a story about a musician, it seemed like an automatic choice. When I first met Ferdi, he was already living in Budapest, so I followed him. 
A lot of research was involved, and I sincerely hope that I did it justice, though of course I took some liberties in the making of a supernatural tale. What inspired you to write The Piano Room? The first image was Faraday's back, slouching at a ramshackle piano. I knew he was special, but I didn't know why. I knew there was a dark figure pursuing him, but I had no idea who it was. I wanted to write a story so I could meet him, but then I met Sondor and realized that I needed to take a step back and tell his story, too, because it was equally important. I also wanted to explore themes that had always fascinated me, the legend of the deal with the devil, the creation versus creator struggle, and the idea of doppelgangers. And I knew that I wanted to write it in a straightforward, bare sort of way. This is what happened, and whom it happened to, and this is what it felt like. What's the most surprising thing you've learned through writing The Piano Room? That characters have a will of their own, and you can't force them to follow a strict path laid out for them back when you still barely knew their hearts. At best, you can guide the story with a firm yet flexible direction in mind. All you can do is be present and listen attentively so that you're ready to follow. So that was just a snippet of an interview with Cleo Valenza on the Fairlight Books website. And uh, I'm going to share with you uh, another uh, short piece by Cleo Valenza. And this was published at The Arcanist. Bone Dice. One. There isn't much to say about how the man with the bone dice wins the soul off of Agota's brother. It is a quick sideshow of a game, while lazy passers-by pause to glance at the man's shrewd hands. Agota's brother sits on an overturned bucket, and the man rolls onto a crusty pile of newspapers. The dice are tooth-yellow and worn dim. Instead of dots, they have small concentric circles with spots, like puncture marks or spirit eyes. The man wins, as he is used to. Agota sees her brother's vacant eyes following the marks. She sees the drool brim over the corner of his mouth, and suddenly she knows. The man's hand falls swift to gather the dice. The spirit eyes wink once and disappear. The tall man pats the boy's shoulder, smiles, and then he's gone. Agota throws her brother's arm over her shoulder, heaves his unresisting body, and carries him home. 2. The boy works off his debts at butcher shops and pig farms. The farmer kicks him around and laughs at him, the way the pigs always outsmart him and run off. Agota walks him home, washes and feeds him, pushing the bread back into his mouth as he chews listlessly and bits fall out. He sleeps with his eyes open. One night, Agota wakes up and finds their mother bent over him in the dark. She's crying, and she has her knife against his throat. Her brother wakes up, stares at her, and falls back into sleep. The knife draws blood and then retreats. Agota gets up, binds the wound, gathers their things, and takes him away. She leaves her mother shaking on the empty bed. 3. The healer woman tells Agota that cursed dice is man business, book business, and that she can do nothing for her. She sends her to the monks, who laugh at her. One of them promises to save her brother if she comes to him and stays all night, but when they are alone in his cell, he begins to vomit and tremble all over, and he sends her away. She stumbles through the orchard, 
sits under an almond tree and thinks about the spirit eyes. The gatekeeper finds her in the morning with blue lips and tears frozen on her cheeks. He takes pity on her and tells her that bone dice were bones before they were dice. Go looking for those bones, he says. 4. Agota has searched for a long time until she hears of a ghost in a house not far away, the house where the tall man with the bone dice had stopped and eaten once. The grandmother claims the ghost eats up her birds, and she offers money for its capture. Agota finds the house, scoops ash from the hearth, and throws a handful wide in every room until the ghost is revealed. It is a tired, shimmering old man. He does not seem to hear them, but when Agata speaks to him he turns, strewing ash on the carpet, and leads her out towards the pond. There is a mound of upturned earth under the willow. She sinks her arms into the ground until she tastes the soil, sweet and damp. Her fingers close around the comb of a ribcage. Help me, she tells the old man, but the ghost shakes its insubstantial head. You help me, he says, and points at the knuckles of his left hand. Agatha digs out a frail thigh bone and snaps it over her knee. The old man winces and averts his eyes in shame. She snaps another bone. Look for my right hand, he says at last, and find a whetstone. Five. It is some time until the tall man comes back into town. It's been a good harvest. The men have full pockets and they are itching for a game. They don't care if they are cheated as long as they get a fair tumble out of it. The tall man is patient. He smiles. Now he rolls onto a porch's floorboards, surrounded by empty bottles, and the losers stumble down the steps with glazed eyes. Agatha waits until they're gone, until the tall man leans back and sighs in weary satisfaction. She sits across him. He smiles and tells her to place her bet. Agatha takes out her own bone dice, still new and sharp. If I win, I get my brother, she says. There is no winning, he laughs. You'll see. Six. Agatha walks home. Her pocket weighs the coin the tall man gave her as a token of her winnings. It is strange, angular, and smooth. When she sits by her brother's bed, she sees his blank gaze, the spit bubbling on his lips. She puts her finger on the scar that mother left. No winning, the man had said. She clutches her coin, remembering how the tall man lost, how he crumbled in a heap of festering skin and rags, how his dice cracked open like eggs. She runs her fingers through the boy's hair. I'll find you a soul. She takes out her dice, strokes and kisses them one by one. They're warm and salty to her mouth. Even if it won't be your own.
Cookie Tongue with Voice. Um, I hope you enjoyed those selections uh, from Cleo Valenza. 
Uh, she is a fantastic writer from Athens, Greece. You can follow her on Twitter at Clio, C-L-I-O underscore V. And you can also find out more about her and all her beautiful writing at her website, legionofwildthoughts.tumblr.com. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo, tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. I guess it's time for a little mise, and on the menu today is a mini interview with our featured music, the fabulous Cookie Tongue. Cookie Tongue is a theatrical freak folk musical menagerie with puppetry, animation, Budo-inspired dance, and ritual magic, featuring original songs and whimsical interludes inspired by Cookie Tongue's surreal mythology, fairy tales, childhood, ghost stories, and a sprinkle of the occult. Performed with guitar, singing saw, glockenspiel, organ, bells, drums, experimental percussion, and orphan toys to send you tumbling down the cookie hole through sugar ash and rolling sleeves of starlight, spellbound, tasting of a world just beyond. And from their band camp, quirky folk fairy tales with weirdo art band sounds, melodies, lyrics, and soundscapes woven together in a mystical, bewitching constellation, tumbling down the cookie hole through surreal, rolling sleeves of starlight, spellbound, tasting of a world just beyond. Uh, so uh, it's pretty spectacular music we have uh, on the show today. And I am excited to uh, share this little interview with you. One, what is your earliest memory of glitter? My earliest memory of glitter is the way my mom made a title of my name on my bar mitzvah picture album. Two, please describe cookie tongue as a cocktail, a cookie recipe, and a canapé. Be as detailed as you'd like or simply list ingredients. Cookie tongue as a cocktail. First layer. Cookie crumbs soaked in monster tears saved from fourth grade when having a first seance, of course, then licked by strange found tongues which were used for a ritual in the woods. We found them growing in the ground by Catskill Falls three years, three months, and three days ago. Layer two. The number 333 dialed in a toy phone, psychically transmitted into shreds of t-shirt sleeves and tied in knots, painted with cherry juice and whipped cream. Layer 3. Miniature creamed rubber hard thumbs layered on top. And to top it off, a small shrunken floating balloon tied with a string and an old tooth saved from age 6 when I moved to California will weigh it down in the center of the cocktail. The balloon stays afloat by warm fairy breath that continually is blown into it. Cookie recipe. 
five tears from moments of miracles, six pictures of carved numbers or shapes you made in trees in your life crumbled, seven hairs of a haunted doll, eight three three-second songs sung into the bowl with six-second intervals. Mix. Pound the mixture with your head once, then go into a trance and transfer it through your right ear while humming a made-up lullaby of an ancestor that is channeling sweetness inside you. Spit out small portions onto cookie paper and heat for seven days on flamed feet while dancing around it in spirals. Three, what is your songwriting process and creative practice like? process of creating changes a lot. Sometimes I start from a melody on the guitar, then play around with scribbled words and combine with improvisation and something forms. Sometimes the whole song comes out while jamming with others. Sometimes, but less often, lyrics are written before the music. It can vary between different instruments, mostly on guitar, but sometimes piano, banjo, ukulele. Four, what are your five favorite words associated with Play-Doh? Mushy, funny, messy, childish, artsy, whimsical, playful. With wishbones? Miracle, magic, occult, ritual, unhinge. With the color red? Listen to the song Red off our first album, Biotic Rituals. Uh, okay, let's do let's do that. Let's stop and listen to the song Red by Cookie Tongue. <laughs> Take the car. 
in your mouth the spots on the streets spots on the streets when you finally pull it out from the stuff that's in your mouth the spots on the streets the spots on the streets when you finally pull it out from the stuff that's in your mouth the spots on the streets spots on the streets when you Red by Cookie Tongue. All right, question five. What would your current obsessions look like as puppets? Unseen puppet who slips inside of audience members and connects their sensors to the spirit world to be able to receive the messages we are sending them on stage. Bonus. If you were a stuffed animal, what would you be? A sewn-up bear, rabbit, foot, and snake-masked stuffed animal with owl wings. Okay, thank you, Cookie Tongue, uh, for sharing your music and thoughts with us here in the Violet Hour. And you can find out more about Cookie Tongue at the website omergal.com. That's O-M-E-R-G-A-L dot com slash cookie hyphen tongue and you can buy their amazing music at cookietongue.bandcamp.com they have lots of great stuff between those two websites so uh, I hope you check them out Happy new moon. Uh, Miss Mousy, what's your cure for uh, overindulgence and holiday eating and heartburn and all that? Mr. Bear, first of all, 
you know that I am a hand-drawn, two-dimensional rodent studying herbalism, and that I do not offer medical advice, and I do not have cures for anything. Oh, I know, Miss Mousy. I just wanted to give you a chance to say your little spiel. Oh, Mr. Bear, you're so funny. Um, but I do have uh, some wonderful recommendations uh, for, um, well, for for anyone, really. Um, digestive bitters. It's, uh, in my little mousy opinion, uh, about the most important thing um, anyone uh, can do to help themselves out. Uh, the bitter flavor is so important to our digestion. And, uh, you know, at least in the... Um, uh, modern, uh, modern day, uh, United Statesian diet, uh, it's, um, uh, we don't really have a lot of bitter. People, people like their sugar, and they like their fake sugars, and they like some more sugar on top of that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, bitter, bitter is fantastic. Uh, it, uh, starts the whole digestive process. I mean, digestion starts in the mouth. And uh, you get the um, the bitter flavor to get the digestive juices going, and uh, you can really help yourself out a whole lot. Um, wow! Uh, yeah, that's um, you know, I uh, uh, bitter can take some getting used to, but uh, I know I know it's it's important. Yeah, it's uh, it can be challenging uh, for some people, but um, you know, digestive bitters you just get a little little dropper bottle of them and uh, just take a squirt uh, before your meals, maybe 10 minutes before you eat, but you know, right before you eat or even in the middle if that's when you remember. You could take them after too. Um, the, it's just important to get that bitter flavor in um, and you can, you know, bring your little uh, little dropper bottle with you wherever you go. So if you're, you know, if you're someone who eats out in restaurants, so though frankly I'm not um, not comfortable with that yet, but uh, or if you're at someone else's house or you know uh, whatever, uh, you have your bitters, bring your bitters with you. Um, but you can also uh, just eat something bitter. Um, you know, you can uh, have a bitter salad, uh, arugula, radicchio, uh, dandelion leaves, chicory leaves. You know, you can just go out in your yard and pick stuff. Uh, well, yeah, we've we've talked about this. You know, just as long as you don't put chemicals in your yard. Exactly, which, you know, hopefully, hopefully no one is. I mean, I know so many people are, but I, I hope they stop. I hope the people listening have yards that um, don't have chemicals in them. So, yeah, leave, leave the leaves and uh, stop using pesticides and um, grow food, not lawns. Yeah, all, the, all that good stuff. Um, but, you know, if um, uh, you, you don't have... Uh, access uh, to a yard or to, you know, wild pesticide-free greens and bitter things, Um, you can find them at your grocery store or you can buy buy bitters. You can get those at your uh, local liquor store. I mean, just cocktail bitters like Angostura bitters, those will work. Um, Or, you know, an herbal shop, of course, or, or you can make your own. 
you can, um, well, you can dig up dandelion and burdock and chicory roots if 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 that's uh, available to you, uh, or you can order those uh, from from a reputable place like Mountain Rose Herbs, or you know, check out what your what your local store has. Um, but then, yeah, you just throw the roots in a jar with some vodka and shake it, and you know, let it macerate for two to four weeks, strain it out, you've got your bitters. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Oh, and there there are lots of plants you can choose from. Um, there's dandelion, burdock, chicory, calamus, centauri, motherwort, ginger, chamomile, lavender, cardamom, angelica, uh, calamus. Did I say that already? Um, there, I mean, there's just so many plants, and you, uh, orange peel, um, you know, you can just mix and, and match, um, and, uh, and have a lot of fun with it. Artichoke leaf, um, you know, there's, um, well, there's no end to it, really. Um, oh, wow, um, chamomile, you mentioned, uh, a lot of people drink chamomile tea, don't think of that as bitter. Well, yeah, a lot of people drink chamomile tea, uh, but a lot of people only steep it for, you know, maybe five minutes or something, and uh, it's not really bitter. Uh, but I'd like to start a, a chamomile challenge and um, have um, have chamomile tea drinkers, you know, even just your regular old chamomile tea bag, um, you know, you can have your usual cup steeped for five minutes or whatever. But then, you know, make a make a cup where uh, you steep it for twenty minutes or more, and um, then you'll well, then you'll 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 have some bitter. You'll have a cup of bitter, and uh, it's uh, really relaxing and antispasmodic and uh, soothing to your uh, you know digestive and nervous systems. Um, so chamomile is a wonderful choice. Uh, ginger and chamomile together. You can make your own bitters at home. You can chop up some fresh ginger or get dried ginger and uh, put it in a jar with uh, some chamomile. Again, fresh or dried, whatever you have. And um, uh, add your your vodka and uh, steep it for two to four weeks. Uh, You know, don't forget to shake it. Get it it mixed up in there. Uh, Strain it out after two to four weeks. And, you know, ginger chamomile bitters are, are terrific. Um, you know, and if you have a bit of a, a queasy, upset stomach, uh, it's help, helpful with that, too. Um, wow, and uh, ginger chamomile are, are pretty, uh, uh, you know, things people are, are generally pretty familiar with already or can get at their grocery store. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't have to be uh, too complicated. You know, you just you want to get the bitters in you, whether you're eating bitter foods, drinking bitter tea, taking your digestive bitter tinctures, uh, having a bitter cocktail. I mean, and uh, all of these things uh, are, are going to help. And, uh, you know, your your gut will thank you. Oh, well, my gut and I thank you, Miss Mousy. Um, do you have any uh, special bitter blends uh, you uh, inspired um, inspired by the work we just listened to by uh, Cleo Valenza's The Piano Room? Yeah, actually, uh, I was thinking about uh, Calamus and Valencia Orange Peel. 
uh, it's a delicious combination. There's there's still some sweetness from that Valencia orange peel. It's uh, got bitterness like any peel, uh, but there the the sweetness of the orange comes through too, and then the 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 warming bitter of the calamus. And uh, I think uh, yeah, I think that's that's my piano room bitters: calamus and Valencia orange peel. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Miss Mousy. Uh, it's it's been another fun visit to the apothecarium with you. Oh, thanks, Mister Bear. Always good to see you. Uh, what what brought on all this uh overindulgence talk? Uh, anyway. Oh, uh, oh yeah. You you saw through me. Uh, yeah. I had I had too much cake, and uh, you know, was uh was just thinking about how to remedy that. Oh, well, you know, one way to remedy that is to share cake with your friends. Did you happen to bring me some? Oh, no, sorry, not not this time, Miss Mousy. I'll bring you some next time. I'm just teasing, Mr. Bear. Uh, but, you know, don't don't forget your bitters with your cake. Oh, okay. Uh, thanks, Miss Mousy. See you next time. Well, that's the show, folks. Uh, thanks so much for spending a little time with me in the Violet Hour this new moon. Uh, thanks to Cleo Valenza and Cookie Tongue for their beautiful writing and music. And uh, well, before we go, let's uh, let's consult the oracle, shall we? Uh, if you remember, it's uh, Francine Pascal's Sweet Valley High, number 74, The Perfect Girl, Robin Will Do Anything to Keep George. So I'm just going to flip through and find us a good oracle. Close out the new moon. Okay. Robin, George is here, Mrs. Wilson called from downstairs. Already? Robin gasped, checking her watch. She ran a brush through her hair quickly and left the room. So uh, I'm, I'm going to leave you with that. So you... Ponder what that that means for you. Uh, for me, well, I'm I'm checking my watch and time is running out here. So, uh, uh, yeah, take take whatever meaning you like from from that oracle. I'll read it one more time. Robin, George is here. Mrs. Wilson called from downstairs. Already, Robin gasped, checking her watch. She ran a brush through her hair quickly and left the room. Okay, thanks so much. I'll be back with you on the full moon. Uh, Take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, you can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous
indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.